Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8. Let me explain to you what we're doing here. As you're turning to Romans 8, a person is only as good as their word. And the only way that you know that God is trustworthy is if he holds fast to his word. This world has tried to conjure within us, especially within the church, and we see this with things like the seeker-friendly movement. Uh, We see this with the way that people have said, well, we're not going to bring up sin or that you need to be saved or that what you're doing is wrong. Well, how dare you judge another person? And and we've had this kind of lorded over us about taking stances on truth. Well, here's the thing. If God hasn't told us the truth, we don't have truth. And I think what we have to realize is that the promises of God can only be verified as we lean into them. Let me say it this way. If I come to the Bible and I start reading the Bible in such a way as to where I'm already believing it's not true or there's not a God or there's no way that he knows what's going on, or, or and, and, I, and I already come with these preconceived ideas. I'm going to read everything through the lens of those ideas, and my thinking is not going to be changed coming out of it. That's because pride is fueling not just my reading, but my interpretation of everything that I have. I have a set way, and the Bible will fit into what I think, period. But... If we come to the scriptures and we say, God, I need to be taught, because I don't know it all. And even though I've studied some things before, and I think I might have it down, there's still a whole lot that I don't know. Coming to the scriptures with an attitude of humility provides the open invitation for God to demonstrate his faithfulness. And so we're going to look at some interesting things today. First, I want you to look up at the screen, because I have a couple of passages that I want to Bring to your attention before we hit Romans 8, and it will tell you why we're hitting Romans 8. The first one is in John. John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, I'm thankful it didn't end there. But, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That word right there means the power. The claim. You can lay hands on it and it is yours. It is personalized. The right to become children of God. Now watch this. As many as received him, John tells us what he means by that. Even as those who believe in his name. So the problem that you have whenever Jesus came to the Jews was by not believing him, they did not receive him. Everybody with me? Now, the sad thing is, is that he's their Messiah. Yes? I mean, the whole Old Testament points to that fact. And so they, of all people, should have been foremost in looking for him when he arrived. But sadly, they missed him. And we're going to see what encompasses that whole idea now. And the reason is, and you might think, good grief, you have been on this forever. The reason is, is because I'm trying to show you that if we know the Scriptures, we can interpret other Scripture. Our parable of the wheat and the tares. And in the interpretation, we have an interesting distinction that is made in Matthew 13, 38. Notice, in the field is the world, and as for the good seed, here it is, these are the sons 
of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And then in verse 43, he gives a very interesting roundup of everything that's going on here. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What we saw last week was that when Jesus Christ destroys all opposition, and there will be opposition and evil that rises up during his 1,000-year reign on the earth, physically, literally, theocratically governing, governing from the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling alongside his partners who are in Christ, Christians who have been faithful in this life will be given ruling and reigning responsibilities in the life to come. And in doing so, evil will come up and Jesus will deal with it. And when he has cleansed all opposition to his reign, he then hands a purified and holy kingdom over to his Father and the new heavens and the new earth come about. The problem that we have is the sons of the kingdom. How do we know that what happens with the wheat and the tares growing up at the same time happens during this age of 1,000 years? How can that be if Jesus is reigning? And the answer is, is because there are people, Jews in particular, some Gentiles, but mainly the focus is on the Jewish people that will be ushered into this kingdom, that will still be in their physical Forms. Now we will see the culmination of all that next week, but today we're going to focus on the idea of the salvation of Israel. That's what we're looking at and how that happens. So in Romans chapter 8, we are going to start actually in verse 35. Now I'm going to do this, and the only reason why I'm going to do this is because we don't have Sunday school today. Some of you chuckle and snicker, you know what that means. Does anybody have any questions about what we've covered so far? If this is your first Sunday here, we love you. Check out our website. Listen to about the past six sermons. You'll be all right. You'll be caught up. But if you have any questions, does anybody have any questions so far that's going on? We're good? There are no dumb questions. I know a lot of people are like, I don't want to ask a dumb question. They're not. You're only being vocal about the questions that everybody else has, I promise. We're good? Okay. So now we're picking up at a strange point. Paul is bringing his ideas to a culmination. He's talked about the sinfulness of man, how even those that judge the wrongdoing of other people are guilty of wrongdoing themselves, how we are all condemned under the law of God and in desperate need of a Savior. Our problem is that we are unrighteous and we desperately need righteousness and Jesus Christ alone provides the righteousness that we need because only His righteousness is is God's righteousness. Does that make sense? In order for us to appear before God and stand in His presence, we have to have a righteousness like His. And His righteousness is perfect. It's not good. It's not, yeah, it seems okay. It's got to be perfect righteousness. And so what he brings his whole argument to at this point in Romans 8 is about the sustainability of, of God's love towards us in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I don't know about you. Anytime that I see questions in the Bible, I try to answer them. So I'm going to ask you, who can separate you from the love of Christ? 
No one. You know what that means? You need to write no one right there in your Bible. You know why? Because there will come a time when you're going, I don't know what to study. Preacher says I should have quiet time. Pastor Steve hammered it for years. I just thought, oh, no one can separate me from the love of Christ. The next thing you know, you got personal revival going on. You want to answer this question. You want to answer it. Because here's what you need to know. Regardless of where you are in life, regardless of what you think is going on, and I'll even go as far as to say this, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not, your unbelief doesn't stop His love for you. It is always maximum in one direction for you, period. If He didn't love you, He wouldn't have spent the time on the cross to save you. Right? God loves the world that He gave who? Right, that means y'all and all y'all is what that means. The world. Jesus died for everyone. So regardless if one is believing or unbelieving, it does not matter. The love of Christ for them is maximum. So notice, for the believer, who can separate you from that love? Notice, the only thing that separates the unbeliever from the love of Christ is unbelief. It's not sin. Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for all sin. He's already paid the sin penalty problem. But people who do not believe do not receive forgiveness of sin because they have not accepted the free pardon given to them and they are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, they cannot stand before a perfect God. They have no defense before His holiness. Does that make sense? So notice, the believer in Christ is not separated from the love of Christ. Nothing can do it. Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, will any of those things separate you from the love of Christ? No. So guess what you do? Right in no. And here's the amazing thing. If you know the life of Paul in the Scriptures, did he experience all of those things? He did. I don't know that he was running around naked like a jaybird at any point. We don't necessarily see that, but we know that he dealt with all those other things in spades. And he still held on to the fact of regardless of what has happened to me or will happen to me in my life, the love of Jesus Christ does not fail. So notice he says, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You might be tempted to write Monday in that bin right there. Don't do that, okay? But notice this, but in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Some of your translations, we're familiar with it, right? We are more than conquerors is the idea. Through Him who loved us. Notice it doesn't say on your own. It's through Him. You overwhelmingly conquer every obstacle, trapping, and hindrance through Christ. Power is found only in Him. Blessing is found only in Him. Now notice what happens here. In all things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, those are rankings of angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, that's another ranking of angels, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now is that good stuff or what? Everybody lick your fingers for these verses. They are good. They are wonderful promises. 
This is why this whole idea that you could possibly lose your salvation is unbiblical. It's not about what you do or don't do. You can't be perfect. And I certainly can't be perfect. So therefore, we rest in the one who is perfect. He holds us. He sustains us. He keeps us. Everybody with me? Okay, I'm feeling like I'm more awake than all you. That's, that's not how we started out, is it? But now there's a problem. And the problem is, okay, wait a second. If nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Paul's time period here, he's looking around and he's going, um, how come the Jews aren't believing in Jesus then? What is the problem here? How come for the first 10 years of the church, from the time of Acts chapter 2 into Acts chapter 10, there's 10 years that take place, and you have overwhelmingly nothing but Jews that are coming to faith in Christ, and this brand new thing called the church has been instituted. And then, with the preaching of the gospel to a Gentile man named Cornelius, by the mouth of Peter, Gentiles now become believers in Christ, incorporated into the church and all of a sudden the needle started to shift away from the jews and more into the gentile realm and the jews started rejecting jesus he's like wait a second we got a problem here the big problem is is that the love of christ is so great god has given him for all but yet the jews aren't getting saved this is a problem what has happened and so notice don't let the chapter break Mess up with your mind, okay? Read it straight through as you would. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were anathema, is the Greek word there. Anathema, excommunicated, cursed is the idea banned separated from christ notice the word separated is not in the original it's in italics there for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh verse 4 who are israelites stop paul is saying i am overwhelmed with emotions because my kinsmen are not coming to faith in christ they're lost Does anybody have a family member you can think of that doesn't know Jesus and it grieves your heart? Yes? Yes? Remember we talked about the opportunity at Thanksgiving? Anybody get a chance to use that opportunity? If so, talk to me afterwards. I would love to collect some stories, testimonies, about how God opened a door so you could share something about Jesus Christ to people at Thanksgiving. Maybe as you stole their chicken leg, right? Better give than receive. Hey, you know where that comes from? I don't know. Wow, you guys are asleep. All right. So here we go. <clears throat> whatever. Not everybody likes turkey. Man, I'm talking about catching deer. Whatever, man. It is not going to be a good day. Moving on. So notice Paul is grieved by this. They're his brethren according to his heritage. And notice how he lists them. They are Israelites. He gives you very plainly who's he talking about now. Midterm test. Who is Paul talking about here? Jews. Do not read the church into this. This is so important that you don't do this. Now watch. They are Israelites to whom belong, number one, the adoption as sons, and, number two, 
the glory. They've seen the glory of God. And number three, what's it say? The covenants, the contracts. The Jewish people are the only people on the face of the earth whose God, whose deity, whose sovereign has stooped down in order to make an agreement with them. No other God in all of history has done that. That's what sets Yahweh of the Old Testament apart from any other God. But notice not only that, number four, the giving of the law. They know what the written perfection of God is in order to have fellowship with him. How about the next one, number five, the temple services. Why is that? Because they all picture what it is to worship God in spirit and truth and the atonement of sin. And the promises, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Whose are the fathers, the church, or not the church fathers, forgive me, the patriarchs. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Now, why would he bring that up? Who is the Christ according to the flesh? Because at that moment, if you were Jewish and you were reading this, or if you had any traces of that, you would be immediately thinking, the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to David. Why is that? Because that is where the bloodline flows. The promise was made to Abraham, right? Get up and leave where you're at. Go to a land I'm going to show you. And there I'm going to make your seed as many as the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you a land to call your own. And through you, the nations of the world are going to receive a blessing. Those are the promises that were made with Abraham that become what is known as the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. Beyond that, he later, 2 Samuel 7, talks to David, and he says to David, I'm going to take a descendant of yours, and he is going to reign on the throne forever. 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 Right? Sandlot, anybody? Okay, never mind. There's going to be no end to his reign. When he starts reigning, he will reign always. The Jews have all, get this, the Jews have all of this revelation from God. Therefore, they have a lot of responsibility to respond to him. Would we agree with that? Okay, so notice, Paul's saying it doesn't make any sense because all the evidence has been laid out through the years for them to receive. So he says here, notice, from whom is the Christ, middle of verse 5, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever, Amen. Man, if you ever were concerned about whether Jesus Christ is God or not, Romans chapter 9, verse 5 tells you very clearly, Jesus Christ is God, and He is God-blessed forever. He is over all things. Amen. Now, Paul's whole thing is, I'm so upset because the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ and they have all this revelation. How do we make sense of this? Now, here's the reason why he has to do it this way. He has to anticipate his readers' questions. They don't have text messaging back then. Paul cannot text the church in Rome and be like, hey, you guys getting together tonight? Yeah, we're going to do that. Okay, that sounds great. You want me to bring pizza? Yeah, bring some pizza. That'll be great to have Bible study. Should we invite Tom? No, they don't have that. They don't have that back then. They just don't. But he gives you an explanation. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Stop. You need to underline that. Whatever the reason that the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ when they've had all of this exposure to the truth when God has specially revealed Himself, we know one thing is for certain. God's Word didn't fail. In fact, you and I would sit here looking at it on the other side of the cross 
2018, we say God's words never fail. Of course, that's not the issue. Because somebody might be tempted to question, get this, question the character of God in His love for the Jews when it was just expounded upon in spades, but the church is mainly, not fully, but mainly made up of Gentiles. Well, maybe God just loves the Gentiles and He hates the Jews. Maybe that's the problem now. Maybe they were so rebellious, He just said, you know what, I'm tired with them. Do parents get rid of their rebellious kids? No. Are you tempted to? Don't answer that. All right. We'll have to 1 John 1, 9 again. And notice this. I don't want to leave you hanging in this verse, but we need, to, we need to get through some stuff because all this is still introduction. Okay? But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Here's the reason why. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Notice the descended is not in there. They're not all Israel who are Israel. You think, okay, what in the world does Paul mean by that? Is Israel as a nation God's chosen people? Is he? He is. However, beyond that, beyond this corporate idea of them being a chosen nation, would you say that only those who have responded to God in faith are the ones who are considered His chosen ones? So we would, so we would not hold a view, like I've heard some people hold, to say that all Jews go to heaven regardless of whether they believe in Jesus or not. Would we, would we agree with that? No, because the Scriptures clearly don't teach that. So, depending on what the context says, as a whole nation, Israel is a chosen nation. However, only those Jews who respond in faith, we would consider saved people. And during this time, from Acts chapter 2 until the rapture comes, if they believe, they are now part of the church. Now, I don't know, some of you may have heard this, uh, uh, gotten wind of this idea. I'm really excited about this, and he's going to be here in March to share about it. Uh, but Paul Scharf was accepted to be a church representative in North America for Friends of Israel. Did you guys know that? An excellent position for him. Uh, and he is starting that ministry up, and he's going to come share more about it in March. But pray for him, contact him, encourage him in that time, because it's a very awesome opportunity he has. To, and here's, here's the main part of what his message is going to be when he goes to talk to churches. He is going to talk about how God has been faithful to everything he has ever said, especially when it comes to the Jews. That's going to be the main thrust of that ministry, that God's faithfulness endures. Now here's a question. Is Israel right now largely in belief or unbelief? Unbelief. So we're still dealing with this problem now, aren't we? This is something that we're still questioning. Are there some Jews who come to faith in Christ? Yeah, we know Jews for Jesus. We would call them Messianic Jews. They've received Jesus as their Messiah. So we get that. We understand that. Now here's what I want to do is, we could go through this. If you want to ask me questions about this, everybody debates Romans 9 all the time. If you want to ask me questions later, let's sit down. Let's personally talk about this. But for the, for the sake of time, let's move to the end of 9 and go to verse 30. Because if God's word hasn't failed, we need to figure out what in the world the problem is. Does anybody here have a highlighter? Okay, super Christians, that's great. Pull out your highlighters. Those are the ones who are definitely not in the outer darkness. We know that, right? Because I got highlighters. Anybody? Okay. Now, oh. <laughs> We're awake. Shut up. Exactly. All right. Verse 30. Here's what I want you to notice, highlighter people. And if you got your pen, make stars next to it, okay? From verse 30 in chapter 9 until you get to verse 6, and I don't know that we'll cover that far. I think we're going to stop in verse 4 of 10. 
But verse 6 uh, in, in chapter 10 and also verse 10 in chapter 10, the word righteousness pops up a lot. And why is that? Because in order for one to be acceptable before the presence of God, they must have a righteousness like His. And when Jesus Christ died, He takes our sin upon Himself and He gives to those who believe freely His righteousness. This is important for us to get. So watch this. Verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, that's everybody who's not a Jew, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. How is someone made righteous? By faith. What is the object of your faith? By faith in who? Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because only He can provide a righteousness that is the perfect equivalent of God's righteousness because Jesus Christ is God. Everybody understand why theology matters. And see, you guys are going to do well when you get into heaven. Theology 101, Jesus walks in, pulls up the PowerPoint, you're going to go, wait a second, I know this one, righteousness. You're going to get it. It's going to be good. So notice verse 31. But Israel, notice, Gentiles, Israel, Gentiles, Israel, notice the difference. But Israel, this is who Paul was upset about in the beginning of this chapter, right? Pursuing the law of righteousness. Okay, stop. Is the law righteous? Oh my gosh! I'm coming, Elizabeth. Coming to join you. I'm having a Fred Sanford up here. The law. The law. The AED, exactly. The law is not righteous? For those of you that said no, tell me what's wrong with it. What is wrong with the law of God? It's old. What? Somebody raise your hand. Okay. Maxine. Okay. Everybody hear that? You can't abide by the law. So the problem isn't the law. The problem's what? Maxine. That's the problem. That's the problem there. It's not that the law is bad. It's not that it's not righteous. It's not that it's not perfect. It's that every attempt to keep it ends in failure. So the problem isn't that the law is bad. The problem is, is that I'm bad. Everybody see that? And what the law does, and it's real good at it, it convicts me that I'm bad. Notice, Israel, look what it says, guys. The law is perfect look what it says but israel pursuing a law of righteousness if you could keep the law perfectly you would be righteous by your own works the problem is is we do not in any sense of the word at all have the capacity to keep a perfect law so watch this but israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law they did not arrive at righteousness by keeping it fully now watch this why verse 32 that's a good question right now you don't have to write this in paul answers it for you okay why because they did not pursue it how by faith how did the gentiles get righteousness by faith so the jews thought they could work for it why are the jews not coming to faith in christ because they're trying to work for the righteousness of God by keeping the law. This is why law keeping leads you nowhere. 
trying to abide by certain rules or standards or, well, I will appeal to God and I'll try to make Him love me or I'll try to get good standing with Him by doing all these right things. No! That's why everyone needs to come to God and say, I can't do it. Help! And that help is provided in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why He died for sins. Because every attempt at righteousness I make ends with me flat on my face, trying to keep up appearances, trying to be somebody that I'm not, trying to tell enough lies to where I look good, trying to weave enough stories, and ended up causing drama. And next thing you know, I'm creating the own, my own sin that I need to be saved from. I'm my own worst enemy. Satan's just icing on the cake as far as my problems go. The person I need to be most terrified of is myself. So notice what he says here. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who is the stumbling stone? Jesus. Get this, guys. Here's what they stumbled over. And if the gospel sounds too easy for you, read the gospel of John, okay? They stumbled over. You can't earn it. Believe in Jesus alone. That's what they stumbled over. They stumbled over the idea of believing in Jesus and no works are necessary whatsoever because Jesus has provided all the work that God demands for righteousness. Everybody see that? So important. Israel tried to earn it. The Gentiles, I mean, I kind of it almost this almost pictures them like they're Barney Fife out in the middle of nowhere, right? I'm just not kind of sure. Oh, we just stumbled upon righteousness. Kind of they just heard it and they believed. The Jews had mountains, literally of revelation from God. And they still tried to earn it, work for it. Please, God, accept me. Well, if I just keep these sacrifices, well, if I just make sure I pray in this way, well, if I just make sure and bring this ripe uh, heifer, if I bring this lamb, if I bring... And it became an exercise in trying to keep up with the Joneses is what it was. Notice what it says here. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Grace was offensive to the Jews. You can't earn it. You have to believe. Somebody else earned it for you. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now don't let the chapter break mess you up. Verse 10, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now for the longest time, I understood this word salvation here to be just their national deliverance. And I believe that that's a lot what's on Paul's heart. Salvation can definitely be understood that way. It is not just exclusively go to heaven when you die type of mentality. But I believe more and more as I've studied it more and more, the way he's talking about is I want these people to know Jesus Christ, their Messiah, become part of the church. Stop trying to earn their salvation and instead believe in the one who has purchased their salvation. Notice his prayer for them. And in fact, if I'm correct, chapter 10, verse 1, this is the only prayer in all of the Bible that, that talks about praying for lost people. This is it. It says here, verse 2, For I testify about them. They have a zeal for God. You know what that means? They're religious. Man, they're religious. Woo! You give them a checklist, they'll try to check it off best of their ability. But here's one thing that we've got to remember, folks. You, you came this morning to think, okay? Is if you noticed in the law, doesn't the law also give you the proper sacrifices in order to administer them whenever the law has been broken does everybody see that so notice the law already comes with an understanding 
that it's not going to be able to be kept by the human being in a way for redemption, for atonement to be set forward and reconciliation and fellowship with the Father to be made. Does that make sense? God in his own perfect law provided the means of which reconciliation could be made by the breaking of that law and it's all in the law. Everybody see that? Now, that's enough right there to make you say, good grief, give me Jesus. Right? That's enough to say... It's way easier to believe in him than it is to try to keep all this stuff. So notice what it says here. For I testify about them, verse 2 of chapter 10, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They don't know Christ. That's the problem. They're not putting the pieces together that he is their Messiah. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's what? righteousness and seeking to establish their own their own what man what do you think somebody's own righteousness looks like what's the best you can do you ever thought about that how many people have been in my office okay it's a mess nobody can get in your office exactly but you will notice in the door right as you leave right above the light switch i have a little plaque from october of 1994 i was the employee of the month at pizza hut yeah, I mean, they didn't put it on real wood, and that's not real gold. But I got a plaque, nonetheless, that's saying, you know what, for, the Octo- uh, for October of 1994, that kid did good, right? 17 years old. You know what I realized? You know the reason why I have that hanging in my office? Because it reminds me, in my flesh, this is the best I can do. I haven't won anything else ever. I haven't. Ask my wife. Sometimes she calls me her little sad sack. (laughs) She does. Because it just seems like it's all downhill with me. Employee of the month was the best I could do. That's what my righteousness looks like. Some little glued together, sawdust junk overlaid with what looks like wood. And little plastic trappings on it that have something engraved that's shined up to look like gold. It's sad. And why is it? Tom's right. And why is that? Because my own righteousness is sad. It accomplishes nothing. You think anybody back there at Pizza Hut's like, man, it ain't like those days when Jeremy was here. Woo! I guarantee you no one is thinking that. They're probably saying, praise God, it's not like when Jeremy was here. Everybody's getting saved at the Pizza Hut. So notice, not knowing about God's righteousness that He freely offers through Jesus, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That they are personally responsible for responding to God. God's free offer of righteousness. They are personally responsible for responding. Now moving on here. And here's the great thing about it. I love this verse. For, here's the explanation, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Is Paul making the point pretty clear to everyone? Righteousness comes by one way and one way only, and that is by faith alone. And alone, 
means by itself. You would be surprised how many people don't understand that alone means by itself. Faith and that's it. And that is the way that one is made righteous. You cannot earn it. And Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And by perfectly fulfilling the law, get this guys, the law is a way to measure God's faithfulness. If Christ keeps it perfectly, He then is qualified, not just in being righteous as Himself, but He is righteous because everything He did was law-abiding. Everyone who is law-abiding doesn't go to court. You can't be condemned in that way. However, us who break the law and can't seem to help but to do so deserve nothing but condemnation. So Jesus is righteous. He has shown Himself to be perfectly righteous. And then by dying a condemned criminal's death, He offers His perfect righteousness to all who believe. And it comes one way and one way only. By faith. That's it. Faith. Believe, faith, believe. Never by works. So Christ is the end of the law for that righteousness. Now what we want to do is look over, go down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. How does someone get saved? Number one, they need to hear the Gospel. They need to hear the gospel. Where are churches in America failing? Evangelism. We did a real interesting project in the seven practices meeting not too long ago. Got out the whiteboard. We listed out all of our ministries that we have. We've got women's ministry. We've got Awana. Uh, we've got uh, music ministry. We've got um, Sunday school. We've got all kinds of things that we do. And we went through and we put a one next to all of them that are positioned towards evangelism and a two next to all of them that are positioned towards discipleship. Awana got a little bit of one in there. And that's what they hope to do. You can't control whether people show up or not, right? But if they're there, they're going to hear the gospel. And short-term missions... Got a big number one. Everything else was twos. And I told everybody, I said, so here's what we're saying by the way that all of our ministries are set up. That for one week in January, a year, we go to another country and that's when we're concerned about evangelism. Isn't that what we're saying by how we're programmed? Everybody see that? That's a dangerous place to be. But yet, isn't the command of Christ to go out and be His witnesses? One week out of the year? In a country that's not your own? That don't sound anything like the Scriptures, does it? Now, am I, am I, am I uh, trying to bum out Roxanne in short-term missions? No, I'm excited about that. But what I'm saying is, is that is just scratching the surface of what ought to be happening all the time. Why? Because no one gets saved without hearing about Christ. And how do people hear about Christ? I tell them. You tell them. We open our mouths. We talk to them about sin. We talk to them about their need for righteousness. We talk to them about how they cannot save themselves. We talk to them about how Jesus did all the work. 
And how it is only by the grace of God that a Savior has been provided. In doing so, we then call them to believe. Is there anything that is keeping you from believing in Jesus right now? He has died for your sins. He's paid the price that you owe. And He set you free. If you believe, you will be forgiven and given the righteousness of God. Is that a good message? How good is it? Are you sure? I don't remember who told me. Actually, I think Tom's the one who told me this. said he was talking to a preacher one time. Is this you about the Packers crowd? He said, look at all those people on TV cheering for the Packers. How many, how many people does Lambeau Field hold? 74, 75,000? It's a big place, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff going on there. Man, they cheer like crazy. It's an emotional roller coaster, it seems like. Aaron Rodgers goes down, everybody's heart stops. How come we don't cheer that way for Jesus? Is he bigger than Aaron Rodgers? Is he greater than Aaron Rodgers? Then how come we haven't convinced the world that that's true? Our Savior is great. Our Savior is great. And here's what I think the problem is. We're scared. We're scared to death of how people are going to think of us. We're scared to death about how people are going to respond to us. Did everybody respond to Jesus favorably in His earthly ministry? So we kind of know what to expect, don't we? But there's something about when we're sitting there looking at the idea of being obedient, are we willing to count the cost to do that? Do people need to know? Are any of us satisfied sitting around going, you know what, I think that person's going to hell and I'm okay with it. It sounds insane, doesn't it? In fact, what should our response be? No! Don't go there! Why would you want to? Because Ozzy's going to be there giving the greatest concert in the world. That's the reason why. Who in the world told people that? I've heard this before. Better to reign in hell than to be ruled over by Christ in heaven. I've actually heard that before. Has that person bought the lie or what? Somebody stepped into an idea where they thought that Satan cared about them. He doesn't care. He knows his end. He knows this book better than we do. And he's been real effective in using our circumstances to shut down gospel witness. I'm not a prophet. In fact, I've got a whole lot more scripture to cover. We're going to do it next week. We're not through the introduction yet. When we hit chapter 11, verse 1, that's when we begin the, the main part of the sermon. But I can't let this go. I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to make a prediction. Are you ready? If this church is not praying and renewing their zeal for evangelism in 40 years, this church will die. It will. And here's the reason why. Because the pressures of the world are too strong. 
I'm not going to be here forever. I'm sure there's a lot of you who thought Pastor Steve was going to be here forever. And I praise the Lord that he's still here. Still able to correct me when I get out of line. Ministers come and go, guys. The Savior remains. The Savior's forever. And whether or not someone knows Him or not is largely contingent upon our responsibility to take up Jesus at His Word and realize, if I don't tell them, they won't know. Why do you think people go to missions? Or they just sit in the pew and realize they were sitting on a cockleburrow and they stepped up and they're like, i got to go to India! Is that how that happens? No! The Holy Spirit grabs them! And starts a fire inside of them. And makes them realize. It gives them God's eyes to see people. They are going to spend forever condemned in the lake of fire if you don't go and say something. If you're not praying for open doors and opportunities in their lives. Because people get saved only one way. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. That's the only way people get saved. Here's the worst one. Well, I do have a prayer request, Pastor. I'm really praying for my friend, George. He really needs to hear the Gospel. Maybe I could bring him to church and you could tell him. What is the pastor's loving response to that? Tell him yourself! And God be with you. And you got to say something spiritual, right? But why is that? Because in the world, every single person in this room has the mic. That's the reason why. Because God, in His providence, in His sovereignty, in His omniscience, in His omnipotence, has placed you and I where we are in life at that moment in order to fully dispense the responsibilities that we have been commissioned with. Here's something dangerous. Raise your hand if you hate your job. Notice I'm not raising my hand. but every You hate your job. Thank you for admitting that. Guess what all the rest of you are? Liars, exactly. Seriously, if you hate your job, unless your boss is here, don't, don't raise your hand, right? We do got some of that. Hey, we work at the same place. But seriously, think about it. You ever wondered why you are at a job that you hate? Why? Because I need the money. Is that the reason why? Doesn't he own the cattle on a thousand hills? Can't he provide anything for you? That's real easy for me to say because I'm standing up here, right? Going through the thick of the situation. It's a different perspective. But have we ever thought that maybe we are placed where we are placed because there are people that need to hear about the only salvation that has ever been provided? That's why we're there. Because God wants us to have His eyes coming in contact with lost people that He loves, that He gave a sacrifice for, who He paid the sins of and offers redemption freely, but they can't get on the train because nobody offered Him a ticket. Instead, we kept all the tickets to ourselves if somehow we needed to get on the train five or six times. We don't. 
give your tickets away. People need to hear. Because righteousness is not found any other way. If they reject the gospel, guess what? That's not on you. In His grace, He provided someone who did the work. He didn't have to. He makes the offer available and you heard it somehow. Everybody think for a minute. How did you come to faith in Christ? Somebody told you, didn't they? You were exposed to it somehow. Whether it was through word of mouth or you opened up a gospel tract. I don't care which one it was. The message of Christ got to you. You believed in what? We're saved. Pass it on. Don't let it stop with you. Somebody else needs to know. How did we become so selfish about our salvation when Jesus died for everyone? Or let me ask a better diagnostic question. I'm not selfish. Pastor, how dare you? Let's think for a second. Don't raise your hand. Who have you led to Christ in the past year? Now again, if it's not their response that matters, then let's make it a little bit easier. How many times have you shared the gospel in the past year? Here's one thing I guarantee. Your response is going to be, well, life was too busy to get around to that. Your life is never too busy to serve Jesus. You may have made it busy, but I guarantee you God didn't make it busy. Busyness and apathy are going to kill the church. And with the problems that we have rising up now, with the acceptance of same-sex marriage, drug abuse has made everybody apathetic. This whole problem we're having with whether or not to legalize marijuana it's going to make everybody brain dead. Everybody's heart's going to become so callous they can't believe the gospel. That's our problem. And so we have got to be seeking Holy Spirit work in order to do God's business. And let me tell you guys something. We're not here to do anything else but God's business. We're not. We're not here to live for self. We're not here to make much of ourselves. Getting employee of the month at Pizza Hut in 1994 is probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. Because it made me think that I was somebody that didn't need Jesus. Guys, independence is a sin. Independence is a sin. Thinking, so, well, if God wants to save those people, He'll send somebody else. No, He sent you. You're just failing at being obedient. That's what's happening here. The somebody else is usually me. Well, I need to pray about it. Do not use prayer as an excuse to not be obedient. I guarantee you, you sincerely talk to God, He's going to keep telling you the same thing He was before you started praying. Pray for opportunities to open that door and share Christ. Can anybody be saved in any other way? Would you say that everybody who doesn't know Him is going to the lake of fire? It kind of makes sense then, doesn't it? We have been given the beautiful, precious understanding and the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can do God's stuff because God resides in us. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Bow your heads. Take a moment. And some of you might already have in your mind who you know that needs to hear the gospel. Some of you might say, yeah, I've been wrestling with that for a while now. Some of you might say, you know what? Family member, co-worker, 
friend, neighbor, I don't whoever I meet at whatever store, I don't know who it is. And so I need some clarity on who that might be. Now is the time to ask that. Now is the time to ask that question. You may be saying, well, I don't get out much. Well, guess what? You can pray for a whole lot of people who do and ask for the Holy Spirit to pave the pavement and give open doors for others to share the gospel. Let's take a moment. Let's pray about that. Father, I pray that you would bring to our minds the people that you have placed us in contact with that need to hear the message of God's free grace in Jesus Christ alone. I ask, Father, that you would give wisdom to us, discernment, that you would go before us and open the doors for this opportunity. They would just fall in our lap and we would just be so awestruck about how your answer to this prayer could not be any clearer than what it is. Father, our sin is so great, but our Savior is so much greater. He is so much greater than all of our sin. Father, if we are being struck right now with the understanding that we missed a lot of opportunities to share the gospel or we just let fear control us or we just let apathy rule our day or we just decided that we're going to live any way that we want to and not bow down to you as our king. Those are all attitudes and choices that we need to repent of now and realize that you have things to get accomplished and you use your people to do your work in this world. So Father, I pray that you penetrate our hearts so that we would open our mouths and we would share about the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, move us to obedience. Hold our hands as we go. Comfort our fears. And Father, please give us the great and wonderful privilege to serve you in seeing you do God things before our eyes. By people believing the gospel, they are brought from death into life. Father, may we be so privileged to be those who share that good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.